0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Genia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 2nd, 2021, and this is right now Wednesday morning. We have our friend Truthvids here with us once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 55 in this series of discussions. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last few presentations, which have constituted several of our 100 proofs, we have compared prophecies in Daniel and in the Revelation and demonstrated their fulfillment in European history. These prophecies, being poetic allegories of things to come, prove the truth of God once their fulfillment is realized and the history of no other people have fulfilled these prophecies but white Europeans, among whom they were fulfilled with remarkable precision. Once that is recognized, the fact that white Europeans are the Old Testament Israelites, while Jews, Arabs, and Turks are all devils, is clearly and fully elucidated. Now we shall progress a little further on in the Revelation to an event which was prophesied to occur shortly after the Islamic invasions of Europe. While the Revelation is not so complete that it foretells all of history, it is sufficiently complete for us to understand that Yahshua, or Jesus Christ, does indeed have the prescience of God. Hello, Truth Thank you for joining us once again
1: Hey bill thanks Vanby. uh yes, yeah, so so here we get into the uh s- simple um you know topic of, of the Bible and you know the collection of the gospels, the putting together of the New Testament, the Old Testament, the formation of the Bible and how it spread in Europe, and how I believe at one point if you stayed at a hotel, you, you could always open the drawer anywhere in a white country, and there would always be a Bible. Uh, pretty much every household had one uh, it was taught in our schools um you know we always went to church and you know the bible was integrated in our culture our whole lives basically evolved around it pretty much right and um you know the, the simple question wh- why are the only the white european race why were we the only people who had this bible and uh, followed christianity i know we've covered many proofs on this but you know, if Christianity spread to the whole world, then you could understand people arguing uh, against us that, oh, it's not just us who are the Israelites. But but it did. We're the only people who ever had it. Right. And we were living when we moved into Germany and Europe, we were living in you know terrible conditions. And then once we Christianized, suddenly we ruled the world and we've covered that. But when we tried to force Christianity on the other races, and that's the only way they ever became Christian, it never did anything for them. It it never helped them. And they've never had a Bible or, or had any scholars written about it. So, so it's clear that only we can be the Israelites, right? I mean, it's just logic if you presented that to someone and just said, why have only Europeans in history ever had the Bible and been Christian? They must be the Israelites. You think that would get them thinking, but, but it doesn't, right? They always have their excuse, right, Bill?
0: Well, well they, they come in from the angle taught by their churches that Jesus changed everything. They don't teach that Christ fulfilled the prophets and that the children of Israel fulfilled the prophets when they turned to Christ, And that's what the scripture teaches. They ignore the prophets. They ignore those aspects. They only point out prophecies that are prophecies of Christ or about Christ. They don't go any further than that. So they disconnect the new covenant from the old. They disconnect the the new covenant from the promises made explicitly to the people who would be the recipients of the new covenant. They ignore all of that because it, it ruins their replacement theology. It ruins the idea that the Jews could be God's chosen people, and they can't have that. They have to please the Jews, who are their real masters. They actually worship the Jews instead of Jesus. That, that problem is an economic problem going back into the early Middle Ages when, when Christians couldn't loan money as usury and the Jews became our masters basically through usury. And we've permitted that. And we've accepted that historically,
1: perhaps. Yeah, but but you'd think that they should be able to realize that if Europeans didn't exist, then there wouldn't even be Christianity or, or the Bible, right? That the, the other races wouldn't have even heard of Christianity or, or know anything about it, right? But... You know, especially with the Jews who uh, completely hate and are opposed to Christianity. They would never have spread it. But, but they, again, they never think about that, did they?
0: Right. Christianity was spread to the, to the other races. Probably, I, I mean, the Jesuits attempted it earlier. I, I believe they attempted it in China as early as the 12th, 13th centuries, perhaps. And the Jesuits were actually ejected from China initially. They were thrown out of China. But for the most part, Christianity was spread with the age of colonialism from the 14th century, 15th century onward for multiple reasons. First, because well intentioned Europeans thought that Christ should be brought to the other races, which is certainly not true, but they thought and That's the way they read their Bible, so they thought that they were pleasing God by bringing Christ to the other races. But secondly, so that European governments, including the Roman Catholic Church, could control the other races. You can't control a race of people unless you control their religion. Once you come to control their religion, we see that every day in in the modern world. That these governments have come to control Christianity through various devices such as IRS 501c3 tax exemptions and things like that. And Christians comply to governments rather than to God. So Christianity was brought to blacks in Africa so that colonists could more easily control the Africans. Or so they thought. And, and the same is true with South America. And... and even the, the, the Native Americans of, of the North American continent. You can't control somebody who's outside of your culture, who's alien to your culture. It's, they're much more amenable when they believe the things that you teach them. So it was diverse reasons why Christianity was brought to the other races, but it was wrong. It was always wrong. It's not for them. It was only for white Europeans, and that's why the apostles went to Europe. That's why we have preserved the scriptures for 2,000 years.
1: Yeah, and the only race who can truly control them is is the Jews, right? Because they understand you've got to cater to their basic animalistic instincts and just offer them, um, you, you know, like like the Arabs just invade Europe and you can uh, rape all the women or pillage and etc. you know, looting, and that's... And they'll always comply and obey the Jews, right? If well, they well, understand right. that's how you, you mass the, the crowds of non and get them to do what you want, right?
0: Right. That's simply because our enemies understand the base nature of the other races much better than we do. We have empathy and altruism and expect the non-white races to be able to accept our values, and live by them, but it's not possible, and and every American city today, and lately most European cities, stand as a testament to the fact that it is not possible. Okay, so with this we shall embark on a discussion of Revelation chapter 10, and ask a question for which the answer also reveals the true identity of the people of God. But before we begin, we need some foundation, some background in the prophets. Before we begin, we must see that Yahweh God had promised to plead with his people in the wilderness to which they were sent following the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. This is relevant to our next three proofs, determining the little book where the little book of Revelation chapter 10 was opened, determining the identity of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, and determining the location of the woman who fled to the wilderness, depicted in Revelation chapter 12. Prophecies of the children of Israel being sent into the wilderness are found in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We have already discussed Isaiah chapter 66 in this context in earlier discussions in these 100 proofs, and especially verse 19 of the chapter, where we are presented with a list of the places to which the children of Israel would be sent. And we explained how the Germanic tribes appeared in all of those places within three centuries of when Isaiah had written those words. And let me say that reading Strabo, the geographer, or Diodorus Siculus, men, learned men who lived and wrote in the 2nd century BC and the very early 1st century AD, in Strabo's case, Germany, at that time, was still a wilderness. There were no cities to speak of in Germany. They were only roving tribes looking to get the best land for themselves that they could. Most of Germany was heavily forested. It was full of swamps. It was very hostile land. And the cities that appear there in later history began as Roman forts. The German people were described. Someone was
1: saying in the chat that there's actually a difference between where the Romans, uh, you know, had all their cities and the east, more east, that you can actually see still some kind of resemblance on the um, designs that they used. Even, you know, centuries, thousand years later, which is fascinating, right?
0: Yes, it is fascinating. Many of the cities of Germany, especially in the Rhineland, actually began as Roman forts. So we have these places, this list of places where the Germanic tribes would appear, and they did. They appeared in all of those places by about 390 BC, at the latest, when they actually invaded Rome itself. So, a few chapters earlier, in Isaiah chapter 43... The children of Israel are depicted in the wilderness, where we read, in part, I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith Yahweh, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not arise, they are extinct, they are quenched as tow meaning all of the ancient power of ancient Israel. So he, and and the next verse demonstrates that. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert and give drink to my people, my chosen. Of course, when Isaiah had written those words, that was after the Assyrian captivity of Israel. It was before the Babylonian captivity of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but it followed the Assyrian captivity of Israel and much of Judah, and and we'll discuss that. Isaiah began his rather long ministry before the death of Uzziah, around 742 B.C. So we don't know exactly when Isaiah began writing, but it was before 742 B.C. However, those words in those last 26 chapters of Isaiah, those words were written sometime after the failed Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, which was around 700 BC. By that time, most of Israel and Judah were far off in Assyrian captivity. And for the most part, only the inhabitants of Jerusalem remained, the Assyrians not only took the greatest part, or the vast majority, I should say, of the northern ten tribes into captivity, a little piece at a time, between 743 B.C., I believe, and 721 B.C., and even later, even later up to 676 B.C., the Assyrian emperor Esar-Haddon is still taking people in and out of Samaria and and Israel. He's moving people into Israel, people from other tribes that the Assyrians had, had subjected. So they're still moving people around as late as 676 BC. But by the time of the fall of Samaria in 721 BC, by that time, most of the children of Israel were either slaughtered in war or taken into Assyrian captivity as it's explained in the books of Kings and Chronicles. However, when Jerusalem was under siege, in the time leading up to the siege of Jerusalem, Assyria had taken 46 fenced cities of Judah and over 200,000 people from those cities and also brought them into Assyrian captivity. So most of Judah, most of Judah that would survive outside of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were also in Assyrian captivity. And that's the context in which those words were spoken to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel wrote up to the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 585 BC, and perhaps even sometime beyond that point. So these two prophets followed Isaiah by over a hundred years. In Jeremiah, there is a promise of reconciliation for the children of Israel in captivity in chapter 30. And then in chapter 31, in the same chapter which later contains the explicit promise of the new covenant with Israel and Judah, we read at the beginning of the chapter, at the same time, saith Yahweh, Will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people? Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Now, of course, when Jeremiah wrote those words, all of Israel and a great part of Judah were in Assyrian captivity. And they were depicted as being in the wilderness. Other prophecies in Jeremiah reveal that those people are in the north, where Jeremiah was told, I believe it was in Jeremiah chapter 2 or Jeremiah chapter, no, I'm sorry, it's right in Jeremiah chapter 1, where he is told to face the north and speak to the children of Israel. It's mentioned again in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah is told, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return thou backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh. So, and, and I'll explain that word return a little later because they were never supposed to return to Palestine. There are other prophecies that say that they wouldn't but to return to God, not to Palestine. So it's an admonishment towards the north. We know that the children of Israel are in the north because we know from scripture where they were sent into Assyrian captivity in the cities of the Medes and along the coasts of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. The Assyrians planted them on their northern frontier. So by Jeremiah's time, Most of Israel and Judah were far off in Assyrian captivity. And for the most part, only the inhabitants of Jerusalem remained. Now, they spread back out into other cities in Judah from Jerusalem. And you could see that process in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And there were a remnant of Israel left in Samaria. So when Joash holds a great Passover feast... I don't remember the exact date, but it was not long after 640 BC, he had gotten some of the remnants of Israel in Samaria to attend the feast. But we can't imagine that it was much more than a fraction of the population because the cities of Samaria were never rebuilt, not by the Israelites. Not for many yeah, that's
1: centuries. What, um, Jews try to claim right that only like I don't know ten percent were deported, but the vast majority stayed there, and then uh, you know revived it. But basically, they try and come at that angle, right? Well,
0: well, right, but that angle is refuted in books such as the Maccabees and Ezra and Nehemiah. That angle is completely refuted. It's actually the opposite. Well, over ninety percent of the people were gone, and perhaps only less than ten percent remained
1: yeah they can't even build the temple right the uh, surrounding uh, uh, peoples have been moved there uh, are trying to stop them and and they're really struggling right, even just to build a temple, all of them together
0: absolutely and and that actually happened in five twenty to five sixteen b c that that's really only two hundred years after the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians, that these people of Judah, 42,000 people, returned with Zerubbabel, and also a very young Nehemiah, and also the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and Joshua the high priest, who's pictured in Zechariah, they were basically some of the leaders of the 42,000 people. And it took them five years to build what was evidently a pretty crude temple compared to the first temple. So these two prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, follow Isaiah by over 100 years. It's difficult to determine exactly when they began writing. It can be estimated, however, from the context of their writing. In Jeremiah, there is a promise of reconciliation for the children of Israel in captivity in chapter 30. And then in chapter 31, we see that promise of the new covenant, but it places the children of Israel in the wilderness in verse two of the chapter. And we see by that, that once again, Jeremiah is addressing those people in the north. He's writing about those people in the north that he was told to address in Jeremiah chapters one and three. He was told explicitly to address them. So, understanding all of these promises found in the words of the prophets, and there are many others like them, that is the beginning of understanding the visions of Revelation chapters 10 through 12. So we shall start with chapter 10 and ask that question, where was the little book opened? I don't know if you have anything to add before we commence with that.
1: Yeah, um, as I said in the intro, it, it was very clearly y- Europe, right? The the only place that even had a Bible. Um, I think outside Europe, it was already overrun by Arabs by, what, 600 A.D.? So so it was literally just in Europe where, where all these, um, you know, started collecting all the Gospels and the Old Testament. And um, just from reading some of the um you know older books such as the history of the Franks you can see that even then many of the bishops were very well learned in um you know you know the old testament they would quote um you know the prophets and the history you know on david on genesis and they even understood uh, a lot of history of the world on, on the Egyptians and uh, other empires out there. So it shows you that it, that's how it all gradually came about. And until we, what we're going to get into is that our people started to break away from the church. And that's when it really started to spread. Right.
0: Absolutely. And we'll discuss that later on in, in this presentation. After immediately after Christianity, we had. The Jews who were hostile to Christianity, and then we had unlearned men, or, or maybe uh, men who pretended to be learned or who thought they were learned but really were not learned. Men such as Marcion, who started their own New Testament Jesus cults and cut the Old Testament out of the scriptures, and not only the Old Testament, but they Markion had actually rewritten the Gospel of Luke to get rid of a lot of the allusions and references to the Old Testament in the Gospel of Luke. So, the true Christians called themselves Catholic, and I'm going to say that with a small c, Catholic Christians, because the word Catholic, as I've explained very often, comes from two Greek words, a preposition which means down, so it's often translated as according to. Something passed down from God is something which is according to God, right? So the Gospels are Kata Matthew, Kata John, Kata Luke, not using the Hebrew or Greek forms of their names, according to Matthew, according to John, according to Luke. That's the, the, how that preposition is used in, in writing, in literature, in speaking, in that context. Kata and holos. Holos means whole in Greek. So, kata holos and the genitive form of that would be catholicus, because the cata and the hollis are elided. Catholicus, that's Catholic, according to the whole. That's what it means. That's the original meaning. Now, the original term, as it was used in early Christian writers, such as Irenaeus or Tertullian, the original term applied to the reception of the faith. It did not apply to the spread of the faith. It did not ever refer to the application of the faith. It only referred to the reception of the faith, how it was received. And those men all understood that the new covenant made no sense whatsoever without the old covenant. Now, those men didn't truly understand that they were the actual children of Israel. Paul of Tarsus understood it, and he taught it, but they didn't get it because they weren't historians. They were just believers. So they didn't understand it all, but they did understand that they had to have both the Old and New Testaments, which we would call the whole Bible. In order to understand and accept the faith. That the faith had to be based on both of those testaments or sets of scripture. That's why they were called Catholic. That's the original meaning of the term. The only true Catholics today are identity Christians. Because we accept the word of God in both the Old Testament and New. In both the prophets and the Gospels. I'm sorry, I... Lost my place with that digression. I I was standing up and pacing back and forth. (laughs) The children of Israel being sent into the wilderness, there were no longer any priests who could guide them with the word of Yahweh. Israel had long abandoned Yahweh for false prophets anyway. So if there were legitimate priests, they were not necessarily respected. Yet Yahweh had promised that he would plead with them And if we understand their identity, we can see that his promise was indeed fulfilled in Christianity. So, before proceeding to Revelation chapter 10, first we shall review some of those promises. In Hosea chapter 3, we see a prophecy which suggests that for a long time the children of Israel would not have the guidance of either a king or a priest. And we'll read verse 4 of Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, And seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. Now, David, of course, was long dead when Hosea wrote. He was dead for about 300 years. So we shouldn't take that reference literally. The reference to David is a prophecy of Christ, to whom David is likened. The same allegory appears in Jeremiah chapter 30 and in Ezekiel chapter 34, parts of which we have already cited here or we're going to cite here.
1: But Bill, um, so when it says we're a king, that means uh, Yahweh, does, does it not, or, or Christ, because uh, the Germanic tribes would have began to uh, have kings ruling over them as they, uh, you know, the Parthians and as they started to migrate north out of, um, you know, the Middle East, right?
0: I, I'm sorry you lost me at the beginning. Please, I, I hate to ask you to repeat that, but I'm going to have to.
1: Where, where it says they were abide many days without a king and a prince, that is that right. specifically referring to Yahweh or, or, or Christ, you know, and Christ? Because uh, the, the Scythians, Germanic tribes, would have eventually uh, started to assign kings over them, right? Even before they became Christian, you know, kings of Judah... Under well, the well that's true. As, and as they moved north and in, into Europe, right?
0: That, that's true, but uh, were they really kings of Judah? We don't know. What, were the or kings of ancient of Israel, David were they England. legitimate kings? The last one that was actually directly ordained by Yahweh was Jeroboam I, I believe. That They were, they were tyrannical men who became kings, who made themselves kings, is what I'm saying. So if they were without a king, a legitimate king, from the line of Zara or Pharez in Judah, then the children of Israel being without a legitimate king, I, I see, would be without a king, right? That, that's, so even though they had tribal rulers, the children of Israel always had tribal rulers. So a tribal ruler isn't necessarily a legitimate king. That's how I understand that prophecy. They didn't have another legitimate king until Christ, because the line of kings of Israel were actually prohibited from, becoming, from remaining kings. Zerubbabel was of the seed of Jeconiah, but the seed of Jeconiah was told that they wouldn't rule again as kings over Israel. Christ was not from Jeconiah not technically. He was the stepson of Joseph, so he inherited the rulership, Joseph of Nazareth being a descendant of Jeconiah. But, he wasn't the physical seed of Joseph. He was only the physical seed of Mary. So, that's that's a complicated issue, but he was not directly from Jeconiah. Evidently. So, Evidently meaning that's what the scripture certainly suggests, or certainly informs us. There were other descendants of David sitting on on thrones and ruling elsewhere later on, but these children of Israel in the wilderness, for many years, were ostensibly not ruled by any of them, apparently. Apparently. So they did abide many days without a king, in spite of the fact that they had their own local tribal rulers. Arsaka, Arsaxes, the Parthians called their kings Arsaxes, and if you understand that the Parthians were actually a portion of the Israelites in captivity, that word Ar is the Hebrew word describing a mountain, or a summit, or the top of a mountain. And that word Saxa, Saxes, Saxes, are Saxes. He was the chief of the Saka, and that's where that title comes from. The chief of the Saxons, if you will. So he was a tribal chief, but not necessarily a king of Judah who inherited his role as king. That's the difference. I don't know if I'm making that clear.
1: Yeah, and, and we, we don't really know when the legitimate kings came back or, you know, who were out throughout Europe. We'll never know, right, until the end.
0: Well, well right, and, and even like the Merovingians made fantastic claims that they were descendants of the Trojans. Of course, the Roman Caesars established their claims that they were descendants of the Trojans right and and history seems to support those claims however the merovingians i, I don't think they could support those claims in history that they don't have a historic basis to do that but they claimed it those claims could have very well been fabricated because i don't see any any way to connect the trojans directly with the merovingians i'm sorry i don't in history i just don't and i don't think they ever presented a historical basis. They just made the claim. So that's an example. Okay. In Isaiah chapter 43, we read an admonishment whereby Yahweh tells the children of Israel to put me in remembrance. Now, we already established that they would not have kings or priests for a long period of time. To put me in remembrance, let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father has sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. And the captivities certainly were a curse and reproaches. But in spite of that, there were many promises... Of reconciliation and recovery for those same people. So likewise we read in Ezekiel chapter 20 and from verse 35, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. So there they are once again in the wilderness. And there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith Yahweh God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod. They were going to be punished. They were going to face challenges. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, the old covenant was already gone. It was destroyed. And and the doing away of the Old Covenant is announced a little later on in the prophet Zechariah. So, we have to understand that this bond of the covenant refers to some other covenant besides the Levitical Covenant. Well, the covenants with Abraham were never done away with. And the New Covenant is based on the promises which Yahweh had made to Abraham, as we see in Luke chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, and I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. Later, we read further on from where we had just cited Ezekiel chapter 34, where Yahweh continues to address the failed shepherds. And he says, For thus saith Yahweh God Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people. And gather them from the countries, and will bring them to their own land, and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall be their fold. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture they shall feed upon the mountains of Israel." I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and will feed them with judgment. Now, if Yahweh God promised to plead directly with the children of Israel, as we have seen here in these three passages from the prophets of Isaiah Isaiah, and Ezekiel, then there must be a vehicle through which he would do that pleading. That vehicle would be the publication of the books of the prophets in accompaniment with the gospel of Christ in the book which we now call the Bible. Then since Revelation chapter 10, and the prophecy of the opening of the little book follows the prophecies of the Islamic invasions in Revelation chapter 9, which in turn followed the fall of Rome, prophesied in Revelation chapters 6 and 8, we must see the opening of the little book sometime during or after the Islamic invasions. So much of what we present from this point forward, this, this evening, will be condensed from our February 2011 commentary on Revelation chapters 10 and 11, and that will be in connection with the next two proofs, this one and, and the following, which will discuss the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. As we have said, the revelation was not meant to be a prophecy of all future history, but only of significant events in the history of the children of Israel, which would be sufficient for them to know that God is true. In that manner, Yahweh has pled with his people whether or not they know and appreciate that. It is still a fact. You don't have to be cognizant of it. I don't know if you have anything to state. I do want to continue and and complete a thought that I had earlier, and, and I sidetracked myself with a long explanation of the term Catholic. It, I
1: sorry, had, did, um, do you want to speak first? <laughs> well, well no. It,
0: it, I don't know if you have anything to add to what I just said.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that um, – uh, you know, you know, most people are, are oblivious to this and they don't realize um, that the entire society we live in, it, it's all based on, I know we've said this many times, that it's all based on Christianity. And the only reason, you know, we don't have uh, all these wars and we got peace between our peoples, you know, in our own countries is because everything's built on this Christianity because Yahweh Christ pleaded with us and he taught us to live this way. Right. And and that's how we had this. Re- re- What's the word? Resonance where we, from living in the swamps and, and gradually getting it together, we suddenly had this explosion of culture and we became civilized. It's all because um, Yahweh pleaded with us, right, and taught us the gospel.
0: Well, well right, absolutely. And the explosion of, of culture, I believe, in, in my opinion, happened with the rise of Charles Martel, who stopped in the West – who stopped the Islamic invasions of Europe. They didn't get past Iberia. And who had defeated the Muslims when they attempted to invade France, which allowed Christendom to continue. And then Charlemagne, who forcibly converted. And the Saxons were one of the only tribes in Europe that were forcibly converted to Christianity. But... He forcibly converted the Saxons to Christianity because he was weary of their constant invasions on the Franks and looting and pillaging the the Franks. Even when Charles Martel, his grandfather, was fighting off the Muslims, the Saxons were pillaging the Franks on the eastern front so that the Franks had to fight on two fronts in order to survive. So, perhaps, I, I don't remember how long it was, but it was under 200 years, right? It, it may have only been about 100 years. And Otto I, who was a Saxon king, became the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor. And with Otto I, Germany underwent a renaissance of its own in, in the 10th century.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of funny, right? How the Franks, or, or I'll just say France, ruled all of Europe, and then um, because Charlemagne ruled it or I think he split it between his sons, and then within a hundred years, Germany, uh, you know, I'll just call it Germany, suddenly had overtaken the Franks under Christianity. So, so from you know living uh, while as wild pagans they, and accepting Christianity, suddenly they became the dominant culture that quickly when they accepted Christ- Christianity, right?
0: absolutely and they were they they were about as far apart as I, as I thought charlemagne became king of the franks in 768 and he died in 814 otto 1 became the king of saxony in 936 and holy roman emperor in 962 he didn't die until 973 he was born in 9, 12. So he had a good long life by the standards of the time. I mean, 61 years isn't really a long life, I hope, because I'm 60 right now. <laughs> but he actually um, led a great cultural renaissance in, in Germany, in the Germany of his time.
1: And, and it's also funny how uh, Charlemagne essentially um, set up the Pope, right? He, he, from then on, the Pope decided who was king, and then the Pope switched to Germany shortly after. I mean, okay, it's 100 years, but suddenly, rather than uh, having France as the Holy Roman Empire, they switched to Germany that quickly, right? Right. That
0: that's The Holy Roman Emperors were basically elected at that time. They were electors. And, and of course, the Pope had to approve. So sometimes the electors were only ceremonial, but they actually had electors, and and only certain princes in the empire were electors, and there was a fixed number of electors. Okay. A little earlier, I had discussed how the Christians... Early Christians, early, and and I, I gather the more learned among Christian bishops, understood that you had to have both the Old Covenant Scriptures and the New Covenant Scriptures in order to worship Christ and have a proper Christian profession, they knew that. Even if they didn't understand all of the historical fulfillments of the words of the prophets, they did know that, that you couldn't really be a Christian unless you accepted both Old and New Testaments. That being said, at the same time, the Jews, their reaction to Christianity was not to stand more firmly in the Old Testament scriptures. Rather, it was to create an entire series of commentaries which refuted Old Testament scriptures, whereby the Jews claimed to be sages that were more intelligent or smarter than the God of the Bible, and that series of writings and commentaries became known as the Talmud. Now, a little later on in history, the Jews figured out that they could profit greatly by claiming to be those Old Testament Israelites and by maintaining that identification. However, their immediate, more immediate response was to create the Talmud. And the Talmud is only a book that argues against the God of the Bible. If you actually read it, I've actually read enough of the Mishnah, the commentaries on the law in the Talmud to understand that the people who wrote it are absolutely opposed to the God of the Bible and sincerely believe that they could outsmart God and and the prophets and Moses.
1: So the law is certainly not written in their hearts, right?
0: Absolutely not. And and that was their earliest response to Christianity. They went off and created their Talmud. Now that, now that's arguable. A lot of people think all oh, the Talmud wasn't set down in writing until the sixth century or the fifth century, and and to some degree that's true. But the Mishnah and and some of the commentaries in the Talmud and some of the other other writings, the the commentaries on on Genesis and things like that, the targums. That They date to as early as the second century. The Talmud is a compilation of books, not just a single book that was written 400 years later. Okay, that being said, Revelation chapter 10, and I saw another mighty messenger descending from heaven, cloaked in a cloud. Now this immediately follows the prophecy concerning the four angels that were bounded to Euphrates and the loosening of them right? The Turkic invasions of Europe. This messenger, this angel was cloaked in a cloud and a rainbow upon his head and his face like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire and holding in his hand a small book having been opened. And he set his right foot upon the sea, then the left upon the land. And he cried out in a great voice, just as a lion roars. And when he cried out, The seven thunders uttered their voices, and when the seven thunders uttered, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from out of heaven saying, I have sealed the things which the seven thunders have uttered, and you should not write these things. The rainbow was first given as a sign to Noah that Yahweh would not ever again destroy in a flood the Adamic race which survives, which survived, I should say, through his descendants. So perhaps the rainbow here represents the promises of Yahweh God in the Old Testament, that through his, this messenger, his promises would be made known to men. But evidently, the angel also uttered things which John was forbidden to write. So that's my rather subjective interpretation of the rainbow. But I believe that that is an indication of the fulfillment of the promises of God, and the opening of the book is that those promises would be made known to men. The medieval church had often, but not always, restricted the common people from reading the Bible for themselves. For example, actually for a contrary example, in an 8th century letter by an English bishop named Cuthbert, which has survived to this day. He had spoken of Bede, the famous English cleric and historian. We must bear in mind that this man was an English Roman Catholic bishop, so his words reflect the official policies of the church in his own time. And in the letter he wrote that in those days, referring back to Bede, Moreover, beside the lessons which we received from him and the chanting of the Psalms, there were two works very worthy of mention which he endeavored to accomplish. To wit, the Gospel of St. John, which he translated into our Saxon tongue for the prophet of the church and certain extracts from the books of the Bishop Isidore. Now, I added the word Saxon there because that is what Cuthbert had meant when he wrote translated into our tongue for the prophet of the church. Now this Isidore seems to have been a reference to Isidore of Seville, the 6th century bishop who had written canon laws against the Jews that we have recently presented here or discussed here. So we see that translating the Bible or portions of it, was a wholly acceptable endeavor undertaken by Roman Catholic priests in the 8th century AD to translate the Latin scriptures, which is what Cuthbert must have been referring to at that time, into the Saxon language. And in fact, in his ecclesiastical history, Bede himself often described men who were well-versed, and who read the scriptures not only in Latin, but also in Greek. Yet shortly after these times, the Roman church turned in a direction which was absolutely contrary to the spirit of scripture. And it made an effort to repress the word of God and to keep it from the ears of the people.
1: I think um, Alfred the Great he was also trying to translate it. I don't know how much he translated, but I believe the Psalms. So, so even kings were trying to, uh, you know, translate it to the local people. But, but I don't know how well it spread amongst them. Right? Um, in the book Gregory of Tours' uh, History of the Franks, he would have been about five fifty. He he. Uh, quotes the kings as quoting scripture so it seems at least the royalty and the nobles um, you know were well taught but I don't know how far that was amongst the local people but as you said they were clearly trying right and it was acceptable to translate uh, back then right
0: absolutely and and I use Bede as an example because I could readily that this letter from this bishop Cuthbert speaking about Bede I thought was a better example than Alfred the Great because I don't know if Alfred the Great, if if it's actually documented that he had completed any translation, but he was a very pious man who who did attempt to organize his kingdom on absolutely Christian lines, right, or along absolutely Christian lines, and and to leave a, a legacy for a Christian Britain for a Christian England, I should say.
1: Yeah. You especially see that, um, he left the letter to his son, King Edward. And, you know, apart from obeying Christian, one of the big things he emphasized was, uh, looking after the poor and giving charity. So you can see he really cared about his people and really tried to be Christian, as you said.
0: Right. But all that changed, all that changed by the, by the 12th century, Pope innocent three, made a statement in 1199 and said, To be reproved are those who translate into French the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the Psalter, etc. They are moved by a certain love of Scripture in order to explain them clandestinely and to preach them to one another. And that was an offense to this Pope. The mysteries of the faith, here we go are not to be explained rashly to anyone. Usually, in fact, they cannot be understood by everyone, but only by those who are qualified to understand them with informed intelligence. In other words, those who we pick, right? the death of the divine scriptures is such that not only the illiterate and uninitiated have difficulty understanding them but also the educated and the gifted and i would say that the roman catholic church still doesn't understand them and it never did 30 years after the council of toulouse which met in november 1229 church council i don't know if i'm pronouncing to loose appropriately. It's a French word, so I never know. About the time of the Crusades against the Albigensians, they had set up a special ecclesiastical tribunal or court known as the Inquisition to search out and try heretics. Now, today, we usually only hear of the acts of the Inquisition against the Jews of Spain and Portugal, but the, especially against crypto Jews, right? But the Inquisition also persecuted many Christians branded as heretics by the church, among which were the Albigensians. They actually put down Protestantism. Protestantism is a lot older than Martin Luther because people could read the Bible. Even if they could read it in Latin, they could understand that the church and the Bible, the scriptures were teaching two different things. 24 of the 45 articles decreed by the council dealt with heretics and heresy. So among its rulings, there are three canons I'm going to read or describe. Canon 1. We appoint, therefore, that the archbishops and bishops shall swear in one priest and two or three laymen of good report, or more if they think fit, in every parish, both in and out of cities, who shall diligently, faithfully, and frequently seek out the heretics in those parishes by searching all houses and subterranean chambers which lie under suspicion, and looking out for appendages or outbuildings, in the roofs themselves, or any other kind of hiding places, all which we direct to be destroyed. So if you're branded a heretic by the church for one reason or another, they're coming to destroy your house, to root you out. Canon 6 directed that the house in which any heretic shall be found shall be destroyed. Then Canon 14 We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament, unless anyone from motive of devotion would wish to have the Psalter or the breviary for divine offices or the Hours of the Blessed Virgin. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. So Christians could only keep Latin copies of the Psalms. That's it. Because the breviary was a common book of prayer. And, and the Hours of the Blessed Virgin, what was some sort of Roman Catholic heresy, in my opinion, I, I guess it was also a series of prayers that were made to Mary. That's my guess. I didn't even look it up, right? I don't even care about it. It's just Roman Catholic superstition. Okay, that being said, that's why they don't want you to have a Bible, because you'll realize that if you actually read the Bible, you'll realize that they're completely full of shit, this whole Roman Catholic Church. Now that I've offended a bunch of Catholics, that's okay. They should get over it and read their Bible. So Christians Christians could only keep Latin copies of the Psalms, as the breviary was a common book of prayer. In the mid-16th century, a few hundred years later, Pope Pius V banned any breviary which differed from that of the official breviary of the Roman Catholic Church. So you couldn't even have prayers that were not official church prayers. But these earlier edicts of Innocent Three and the Council of Toulouse in the 12th and 13th centuries were among the first responses of a tyrannical church against people who read the scripture and disagreed with Rome in the interpretation of its meaning. Paul of Tarsus clearly taught that the so-called mysteries of the faith were revealed in the Gospel and the Apostles of Christ. But the church wants to lead the people to believe that the faith is still a mystery, ostensibly so that they may define it for themselves. The faith should not be a mystery to anyone who understands a little history and reads the New Testament. There were bishops who actively sought to destroy Bibles and even demanded that people turn them in. It was also in the 12th century that the independent, as you would mention before, the Culdee Church, or the Celtic Church of Ireland and Scotland, which was never related to the Roman Catholic Church, had been subjugated to Rome, had been forcibly subjugated to Rome by the English, who were Catholics at that time. So, while Rome sought one true church... To the contrary, Paul of Tarsus told the Corinthians that there must be sects among you in order that those approved will, will become evident among you in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And from Paul's work, we also learn of the people of Beroea, the Bereans that these were of a more noble a race than those in Thessalonica who accepted the word with all eagerness each day examining the writings if these things would hold thusly. So here we have the apostles preaching to the Berians and the church claims its authority from the apostles, right? The apostles preach to the Berians and the Berians check the scriptures to make sure the apostles are correct. That's what Paul's describing there. That's what's going on there in Acts chapter 16, 17. So how do the popes claim to be better than the apostles? That they could command you not to check the scriptures to make sure that what they say is correct. But that's what they're doing. They're superseding the authority of the apostles. They're putting themselves above the apostles. And by doing that, they're even putting themselves above Christ. Because they searched the scriptures, Luke wrote of the Berians, so many from among them believed, and of the noble Greek women and men, not a few. In other words, many, in Acts chapter 17. Christians were expected to study the scriptures for themselves, and to arrive at their own conclusions, and act according to those conclusions. In that manner, we understand that God is in control and not man. The Roman church clearly did not like that idea, since it was little but a professional pagan priesthood, which feared losing control over the people. If it was a true—
1: Just one more quote from uh, Gregory. I was quite astonished how he believed that if you wanted to please God, then you would give gifts to the church, and and then the the God of the Bible would reward you. And that that was even in 550 uh, AD. Uh, I found that quite astonishing and that the uh, the power of the Saints uh, if you prayed to one of the Saints then he would give you you know he would bring blessings upon you or when something happened it was the uh, blessed St Thomas who died his power was doing that you know you know he did still quote God but you can see it was completely corrupted right and that you can understand when Charles Martel came and he was asked in for the money to build an army to stop the Arabs and then they refused he had to forcefully take it from the churches right
0: absolutely the medieval churches were only replacements for the old pagan temples of the Greeks and Romans if you read that the um the tragic poets men brought gifts to the temples of Apollo and laid the gifts on the altar that was a dedication meaning that from that time forward, as soon as an object or a person, because men could bring slaves to the temple and, and devote them to the god of the temple, once something was placed on the altar, it became the property of the god of the temple. And the temple decided what to do with it. So, people that were in dire straits or men that sought the favor of a god, would bring something to the temple and lay it on the altar and dedicate it to the priest and the temple so that they would have the favor of that god and they would look for an oracle or a blessing from the god of the temple. And that was the money-making machine of, of the ancient world called the Oracle of Delphi. You would bring some gift to the Oracle of Delphi and the priestess at the temple would give you an oracle that was usually so obscure that it was difficult to understand. And you would go away thinking that you had the blessing of, of that god in exchange for your gift. So we see in, in the words of Gregory of Tours that you just mentioned, we see an extension of the old pagan practices of the Greeks and the Romans, where in truth, the God of the scriptures will bless you when you keep the law. (laughs) Not because you bring money to a temple. And the scriptures are absolutely contrary to that idea. You should take care of your fellow people your, your kinsmen who are less fortunate than you are. Yeah, if you're blessed with riches, you should take care of them. They being the true church, the ecclesia, but not this priest in this temple, which is now called a church, but it's not the church. It's only a building, and the organization behind it is not the church. The word translated as church in our Bible is the Greek word ecclesia, and it only relates... To the people, not to any organization or any building. Therefore, the angel with the small book, which was open, which descends out of heaven, symbolizes the word of God in the hands of the people in the form of the Bible, which the people at least in some degree had, as it is evident indeed, and which the Roman church tried to take away. The invention of the printing press by Johann Gutenberg around 1440 AD, upon which one of the first mass-produced books was a copy of the Latin Vulgate Bible, and which a short time later launched a revolution in the distribution of printed matter, especially the works of Christian writers such as Luther and Erasmus, assured that the Bible would remain a fixture in Christian homes. Now, I'm going to establish that this little book was the Bible as we proceed. For now, we will read verses 5 through 7 of Revelation chapter 10. And the messenger, whom I saw standing upon the sea and upon the earth, raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by he who lives for the eternal ages, who created the heaven and things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and things in it, that there shall No longer be delay, but in the days of the sound of the seventh messenger, when he is about to sound the trumpet, then the mystery of Yahweh is completed as he had announced by his servants, the prophets. The seventh messenger or angel does not sound until the end of chapter 11 in verse 15. This is a complex issue. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 21, we see that after the beast empires lose their dominion, the kingdom is handed over to the saints of the Most High. It was the Reformation which began this process. The Reformation freed the main body of the people of God, the Saxon people from the power of the second beast of revelation 13 which is also the little horn of daniel chapter seven which as we have explained here is the roman church papacy once this happened the saxon peoples of northern europe didn't gain did indeed gain world hegemony and they are still the greatest cultural influence in the world today even though they are not more than a twentieth of its population. However, today there are other prophecies which are unfolding and which are still affecting us, which we cannot possibly discuss here. Now, in this context, when I say Saxon peoples. I'm actually including the Franks, although they're not truly Saxons, they came from the stock of the same Germanic tribes from which the Saxons had come. So they are Saxons, but they became known as Franks. And I'm also including the the true Spaniards, who to a great extent also descended from the Gauls and the Goths. So I'm not discounting them, however, that they basically become marginalized in history because of all the race mixing that's occurred there since the, well, actually since the dawn of time, because there were always a large number of Jews in southern Spain, but also since the Islamic invasions has basically destroyed two-thirds of the blood of Spain and Portugal, in my opinion. They might deny being mixed, but a great number of those people are actually Arabs today. The mystery of Yahweh is the concealment and later revelation of his people. The concealment happened after the Assyrian deportations of Israel, and a revelation would happen in the gospel. Therefore, Luke, in chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, reads, where Simeon, Explain exclaims in part, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Now, it's not God's fault that men have not understood those words. As a second witness, the our own translation of Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, for this cause I, Paul, captive of Christ Yahshua on behalf of you of the nations, Paul was writing this as he was under bonds in Rome, if indeed you have heard of the oikonomia, the management of the family, of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, Just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors, or apostles, and prophets, you have to understand the words of the prophets in order to truly understand the Christianity of the apostles which is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit, those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua, through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of his power. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of the prophets, that it would reveal which nations are the Israelites of the Old Testament put off in the wilderness as they accept the gospel. That's what Paul is teaching. The church twists that into lies about Gentiles and, and, and ignore the fact that Paul is saying that the mystery is now revealed when the apostles went to Europe and preached to the nations of the children of Israel in Europe, which included many of the Greek tribes, not all of them, but the Dorians and the Danans and the Macedonians and the Romans and the Galatians who were Germanic, who were a, a Germanic tribe, the Galatahi in Anatolia.
1: And the Eventually whole point the of the gospel, gospel is, is made... to enlighten us right about the truth, not to uh, be too complicated for us to understand the, the idea that only the... Um you know, top-class, the enlightened bishops can understand it, and we're too stupid, is uh, completely contrary to it, right?
0: Absolutely, because the apostles expected us to be able to read the Scriptures and understand it once they explained to us that basically, and Paul says this over and over again in different language about his epistles, that we are the descendants of those Old Testament Israelites. It is fully evident that by the prophecies of the Old Testament, the children of Israel would be revealed. The identity of the children of Israel would be revealed in their fulfillment of the word of Yahweh upon receiving the gospel. And that is what was elucidated in the Reformation, even if they themselves did not realize that revelation. The people that we see building the kingdom of God after the eclipse of the papacy, these are the people of God, evident in Daniel chapters 2 and 7 and here in Revelation chapter 10. Once you understand the prophets and their historical fulfillment, all of this is pretty easy. It's pretty cut and dry. Continuing with Revelation chapter 10 from verse 8. And the voice which I heard from out of heaven speaks with me again and says, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the messenger who is standing upon the sea and upon the land. And I went to the messenger, saying to him, Give to me the small book. And he says to me, Take and eat it, and your belly shall be bitter, but in your mouth it shall be sweet as honey. And I took the small book from the hand of the messenger, and, this is John speaking of himself, and I devoured it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey, and when I ate it, my belly had become bitter. Then they say to me, it is necessary for you to prophesy again, concerning many people and nations and tongues and kings. Now, the apostles Peter and James had both warned Christians of the trials which they were to suffer on account of the faith. We do not realize these trials when we embrace the things of the world and join ourselves to the world, so long as we have the things of the world. But when we pursue the things of God, then we realize the trials and pray that he keeps us from them, covering ourselves with the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, the word of God is sweet in our mouths, but bitter in our bellies. If we have joined ourselves to the things of the world, it pains us to hear it. But if we enjoy hearing it, it pains us to live by it because of the strife which we get from
1: the world. As the Yeah, once you awaken to uh, Christian identity, you realize how effed up the world is, right? And uh, what we're stuck in and how powerless we are. And, um, you know, we've seen from personal experiences on the forums and the chat and just people in general that, a lot of people walk away from Christian identity because they expect life to be easy once that you wake up, right? That suddenly um, life will be great because you know the truth, but it's the other way around, right?
0: Absolutely. You're going to be facing more challenges. Your, your faith is going to be tried. It's going to be tested. The fiery trials, which the Apostle Peter had spoken of in chapter 1 of his first epistle. The warning of Christ, that we would be tried by fire in Acts chapter 1. That there were many trials to come before his return. That we are being baptized in the trials of this world. That's the true Christian baptism. Not the ritual in water that the Roman Catholics had maintained. Because they don't want you to know They don't want to teach you, even if they knew it themselves, which they don't, what the true Christian baptism actually is. They substitute a ritual and pretend that you're righteous when you go through this ritual because they are dispensing righteousness to you. They, their priests, are giving you your sense of righteousness, and it's a false righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God. John's told to eat this book, and Ezekiel was also told by Yahweh to eat a book, and this is how we know that John is talking about the Bible. Ezekiel was also told by Yahweh to eat a book, so to him it was stated at Ezekiel chapters 2, 8 through 3, 3, it's all one passage, the chapter division is unfortunate, but the passage starts in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8, and continues into chapter 3. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, this is Ezekiel speaking, and when I looked, behold, a hand was sent to me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. In other words, it was a scroll written on both sides. And it was written therein, Lamentations, and Mourning, and Woe. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of Man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of Man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey for sweetness. So we see the same thing in Ezekiel that we see in the words of John in the Revelation that he was told to eat this this roll. It was sweet in his mouth. Now, it doesn't say it would be bitter in his belly, but we can see that it's bitter in his belly because he's speaking to the house of Israel with what was written on the roll, and it was lamentations and mourning and woe. So the little book must represent the Bible, which is the gospel of Christ and the words of the prophets, because that is what John had spent his life announcing both before and after he had received this revelation. So we can determine that because after Ezekiel ate the scroll, he was to announce the things in it to the house of Israel, the mystery must be what is contained in the words of those same prophets who said that scattered Israel would receive and accept the word of God in the wilderness. Christ is that word made flesh, and that is what John announced, period, in my opinion. The comparison proves that the little book of Revelation chapter ten is the gospel and and the words of the prophets, which John announced i don 't know if you have anything to comment,
1: yeah, I was just going to say that, and you' also have the verse that if you 're not written in the book of life um that you know you don't essentially get into heaven right and that must be written in the Bible that you must be part of the race of Adam right because the 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 book it says um In Genesis, this is the book of the race of Adam, right? The descendants, it's for us. And um, basically the entire Bible has been written by the Israelites, right? Even Moses went back and wrote the early parts, and from then on it's always been written by us. So it it shows you that the the Bible is all about the Bible, right, and being part of the race of the Bible. Right. And the
0: apostles were certainly all white. They would have raised a great deal of suspicion if they looked like mandingos walking around the streets of the cities of Macedonia, there would have been a serious problem there. If they had bones through their noses and grass skirts on, I don't think the Greeks would have even let them off the ship into their cities. Christ is the word of life. If Christ is the word of life, then we know that the book of life is the gospel and, and the scriptures and the words of the prophets embodied in him. He is God, so he that word emanated from him. Okay. The reformers broke from the church in response to decisions made by the Fifth Lateran Council under Giovanni de Medici, who was posing as Pope Leo Ten. now they're called reformers for a reason. That they're called reformers, that there was a movement within the church for a couple of hundred years, perhaps dating back to the 14th, 13th centuries of men who were even bishops and, and learned men who wanted to reform the Catholic church because they saw the problems with the church and they saw the great departures that the church had taken from the scripture. So I mean, the de Medici's and the Borgias and those other crime families that became popes—that they had opposition to some degree. Whether or not those men had any real backbone, we can only see in their individual histories as to whether or not they were persecuted by the church that they wanted to reform. And the reformers that were successful were those who opposed the church to the point of breaking from it, which we see in in Martin Luther and Jan Hus and just a couple of others. So the actual break from the church didn't happen until the 15th century, 16th century, I'm sorry, but there were reformers before that for a long time. So that's why they're called reformers. They wanted to reform the church, and finally, Martin Luther's hand was forced because he was a man of conviction, even if he had Jews and pagans on his side. He was a man of conviction who knew that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong, at least about several things, perhaps 95 of them, right? He had 95 theses, but... He, having conviction, actually withstood the church and opposed it to the point where he had to break from it. And he was protected by other men of conviction when that happened in Saxony. However, his movement didn't follow him in his conviction. He is credited with founding the Lutheran church, but it broke from him even before the end of his life. So that's another story. When he wrote On the Jews and Their Lies, that was at the end of his life. Three years before he died, he wrote that. And the Lutheran Church was more or less embarrassed of it. They never accepted it, even in 1543. So the Reformers broke from the Church in response to decisions made by the Fifth Lateran Council, which was conducted under Giovanni de' Medici. And I have here who was posing as Pope Leo X because he was really only a converso Jewish criminal. In my opinion, his whole family was a converso, converso Jewish gang of criminals. I suspect they were converso Jews. I can't prove that. It's circumstantial. So there at that fifth letter in council printing of Bibles or of any book without the express permission of a local bishop was outlawed once again by papal bull. So the Reformation assured that the edicts of the council would be in vain. If it failed, perhaps the, if the Reformation failed, perhaps the common people would have never seen a Bible again. And the church may have even done away with it. The Bible is very inconvenient to the Roman Catholic Church. It always has been. But the desire of the Germanic peoples to read and follow the will, their will to follow the Word of God, once they were able to read their Bibles, caused them to revolt from the tyrannical Roman church, which in turn caused great wars throughout Europe, notably the Thirty Years' War in Germany, and the destruction of the Huguenots under Catherine de' Medici in France. So, do you think there's any relation between Giovanni de' Medici and the Fifth Lateran Council and Catherine de' Medici and her persecution of the Huguenots? They wanted to control these people, All of the bloodletting of the English Reformation and its temporary reversals in in the 16th century also resulted from this will of the people to break from the church and read their Bibles. That little book, which the angel assured would remain open. There were estimated to be as many as 12 million deaths in the Thirty Years' War alone, all because the popes claimed to have a right to rule over men. None of that is Christian. The powers of evil which wanted to oppress the people, combined with the Nicolaitans among our own people who forever seek to rule over us, those who would set themselves up as priests and rule over us, these would have stamped out the word of God, totally removing it from our lives and replacing it with church law and papal decrees. So with the opening of the little book in Revelation chapter 10, in that manner, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea, where it says, afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. It does not necessarily mean that they would return to Palestine, but they did return to Yahweh their God through the gospel of Christ. This is also a fulfillment of the words in Isaiah, where Yahweh said to the children of Israel, to put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou that thou that thou mayest be justified. Likewise, it is the fulfillment of his words in Ezekiel, where he said, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead to you face to face, And later on, in that same prophet where he had promised that, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries, and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country." If the little book were not opened, Christ had no other vehicle by which he could feed his people, as the Roman church was only caught up in its own rituals and idolatry, period. The widespread printing and distribution of Bibles in Europe proves that the European peoples are the children of Israel.
1: Yep, and it happened nowhere else on earth, right? And um, as you said, only the Germanic people, um, when they broke away and set up colonies, they kept Christianity. They fought for it, died for it, and then went and built great Christian nations. And not just abroad, but even in Germany, you know, in the north of uh, Europe, they all um, got even better, right? We went into the Industrial Age, and that all happened once we broke away from the ter- church.
0: Absolutely. There might be today Bibles printed in China by Chinamen and Bibles printed in Africa by Africans, although I kind of doubt that. It might exist where these people had gotten printing presses from white men and and they can use them. But all of the Bibles in every language were printed by Europeans and distributed to those other races. I'm not saying that was good. It certainly wasn't good. Because Yahweh is the God of Israel, and Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wasn't kidding around when he said those words. He meant them. So I'm not saying it was good that the other races received Bibles from white men, but the Bibles they have, they did receive from white men. They were translated by white men who learned those languages and translated the Bibles into those languages. Now, exactly. of course, so if, of course I'm Africans certain some were, Jews were also involved the in that process. The Israelites, why did they
1: need us then? What, why did we have to form the, the Bible for them, translate it, and then give it to them? What, <laughs> wouldn't they have done it themselves?
0: Well, well, right. If they were the people of God, they would have done it themselves. It, it was part of the process of colonization and the desire to control those alien peoples, that we would Christianize them. And even British Israel thought it was good to Christianize them. But it's not the word of God that they ever be Christians. The word of God is to the contrary. That's why the apostles only went to white nations in the first place. Paul could have easily gone to the Egyptians or the Arabs. He never did. There's no epistle of Paul to the the Arabians. There's no epistle of Paul to Egyptians. Or any other
1: and It's interesting that there were people trying to um, you know, reform the church uh, for several centuries and obviously it never got anywhere. And and today we have the same thing, people um you, you know, against uh the, the lockdowns and COVID that they think that they're gonna by protesting that anything's gonna change, mm-hmm. right? And and it never does. And when you finally break away, uh, you see the real uh, tyranny that comes out, like with this thirty years' war, right? We'll probably get the same thing. When people finally realize it.
0: If they ever realize it, they they might all be dead first, especially with these vaccines.
1: Okay. Thank
0: you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill. As always, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.
0: We'll be back next week, I pray, with Revelation chapter 11 and the two witnesses. That might be fun. Praise Yahweh and good night.